Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Okay, it is. Thank you. All right, here we go. Three, two. Welcome to Film Strip. I'm Jay, and I'm Nick, and this is our review of Basic Instinct, starring Michael Douglas, Sharon Stone, George Zunza, and Jeanne Triplehorn. Directed by Paul Verhoeven, released in 1992 in a budget of 49 million dollars, grossed 352 million plus in its run. So, we talked about last time that we were gonna, we were doing these, and that you've never seen Basic Instinct. This is all new to you, right? Yep, I have never seen the movie fully through. Um, seen bits and pieces of it, but we won't get into that. Yeah, first time I've ever seen this, and actually, it's kind of funny because this is actually, I think, the uh, first movie we've ever reviewed where one of us has the same name as a character in here. So this is gonna be kind of confusing. So talking about it, it could be. I don't know. You ever podcast high on cocaine, Nick? I hope not. So uh... <laughs> I, I am right now. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It might make this experience more interesting we'll see we can get into that but you know this is uh from the mind and pen of joe esterhaus uh the writer of flash dance and jagged edge and sliver and jade and showgirls you know real classy family oriented films um, i've never seen any of those movies <laughs> so. uh, i've seen uh, all of them uh so <laughs> we'll, we'll, you know but uh they, and they're all as equally as bad um you know the thing is about this guy 16 films that he's worked on has made over a one billion dollars according to his wikipedia page uh, so we like it or not sleazy or not i, I kind of liken him to like the cheesy paperback romance novelist you know he just wrote like some of the sleaziest scantiest stuff and it Got put on celluloid and made money. And we wrote this in the 1980s and it was purchased for $3 million and bounced around forever. And, wow. uh, before it ever got made, we would talk about that. Um, Are we saying this guy's kind of like the, um, the Nicholas Sparks of his time? <laughs> Nicholas Sparks, if like he was interested in strip clubs, I think is more of the way of it. But, uh, you know, I didn't see this when it came out though. Like, un unlike, uh, Basic Instinct or unlike, Fatal Attraction. My folks did not uh, think this is was necessarily a uh, you know a good object lesson. In fact, I don't know if they've ever even seen it. Um, so, um, but I, of course, I knew the reputation of it. I think everybody knew about the scene. We'll get into that. But I saw it in college, having heard about it for a number of years. And yes, there is a sequel. And no, we're not reviewing it at this time. Um, the small popcorn piece of garbage that it is. But uh, I've only seen it once. But I've seen Basic Instinct several times, and it's been a long time since I watched it. Um, Matter of fact, I think it's been four or five years since I laid eyes on it uh, before we decided to do it for this review. But uh, I guess we can get into it. Uh, it. It's not too complicated a story, I don't think. I mean, uh, let me lay it out for you here. A beautiful, tr you know, false, uh, a beautiful crime novelist, Catherine Trammell, becomes a suspect when she's linked to the brutal death of her rock star boyfriend, who's stabbed to death with an ice pick. Oh, during sex. 
Investigated by a homicide detective, Nick Shooter Curran, Catherine seduces him into an intense relationship. That's one way of saying it. Meanwhile, the murder case has become increasingly complicated uh, and more when more seemingly connected deaths occur and Nick's psychologist and former lover, Beth, appears to be the culprit. Eventually, everything gets blamed on Beth and Nick shoots her dead. He ends up with Catherine in bed and we see where she was indeed the killer but decides to spare him from the ice pick for now at least. And that's kind of the straightforward version of Basic Instinct. There's certainly a lot more twists and turns in it, but uh, this one isn't real complicated. I mean, it's pretty basic, kind of like our last film, Fatal Attraction. There wasn't a ton to that, and it, it kind of laid itself out and was pretty easy when it was all said and done. Yeah, I mean, these movies aren't very plot heavy. I mean, there's a lot of uh, kind of back and forth and a lot of, I guess you can call them character moments, but... um uh, yeah, I mean, the plot is pretty straightforward, even though I kind of had questions, though. I mean, they, they leave a lot up to kind of like your interpretation, I believe, as far as like the outcome and like, you know, who's the killer, who's not the killer. At least that's kind of how I viewed it. I think this is almost kind of like a choose your own story almost in the middle <laughs> as far as because it's kind of looks like, you know, there's a lot of red herrings throughout the movie, but. I don't know if anything's like sincerely concrete as far as like who killed who and who's involved with who and who gave what information to anybody. I think it's just kind of like you kind of piece it together based on like, you know, just kind of what you see and like, you know, probably like who you relate to in the movie. So, And that's the thing about this one. I find it really hard to relate to anything here. This movie came out in 1992, but my goodness, is it stuck in 1987? Or what, man? I mean, like, the whole aesthetic, the way it looks, the cheesy ultra-80s noir soundtrack, the overly gratuitous violence and incredibly over-gratuitous sex in it. I mean, this movie wants to be in the time it was written in. It just happens to have been shot in the early 90s. Yeah, definitely. I mean, <laughs> speaking of those sex scenes, my God, it's like, were these people gymnasts? <laughs> I, you know, I mean, like, look. You it doesn't about work going, like that. <laughs> no. It, it, as anyone will tell you, it does not work like that. That's where cramps come in. Like, my back hurts just thinking about some of that. Uh, but, you know, it's meant to titillate and, and, you know, just get you all, you know, hot and bothered. And honestly, it just makes you go. Yeah. What's funny to me, like it occurred to me watching this, and I'm sitting there watching this with my wife, and we're going like, well, this is like way steamier than anything Fifty Shades had in it. So, And that movie's supposed to be about like steamy as it is. So I was like, well. To me, this kind of, it kind of came off almost like a Skinamax flick. Oh, man. Yeah, it's uh, it's like the softest, cheesiest core porn ever, right? It is, totally. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's it's a total... Uh, That's the one thing I'll say about the Fatal Attraction love scenes. They were a little intense and, and wild, but mostly believable like you could you could buy that you know this like i don't know anybody i guess if someone really this. likes water i guess i get i guess that was the one weird piece i guess yeah but i mean you know you could mostly buy that this though is out there man and i mean it starts on one nick that's the thing this movie wastes no time letting you know here's what we're here for it starts with a woman and a man in bed together, writhing. It's they're full everything. You get it all. You get the moment of climax, and then the big twist. And Rob Botten, I'm probably saying his name wrong. Special effects wizard, you know, for decades, did the thing, 
right? You know, one of my favorite John Carpenter films, just incredible looking effects. He did all the gore effects here. They got like the sci-fi horror master to do this, you know, cheesy Skinamax <laughs> flick. And I got to tell you that ice pick death in the, in the beginning, Johnny Boz, that was pretty brutal. I, I can honestly say I didn't know what this movie was about when I finally saw it, but I did not expect that right out of the gate. That was brutal. Kill it. Yeah, there was. It was. It was totally unexpected. I mean, you're, you're kind of watching this and you're like, oh, okay. And also, like, the ice pick comes out and it's like, oh, she kind of turned it around on him. She's poking him. So <laughs> I think that's exactly isn't that one of the cops makes that joke, too. I mean, it's, yeah. Uh, he dies in the moment of pleasure. Uh, I guess if there's a way to go. But I mean, stabbed right in the neck and in the chest. He stabs him like 20 something times. I mean, he's brutalized, right? Were they high when they were doing this? Well, this they, like, they, it was so yeah, they, just like, over they talk the, about it. Yeah, they talk about like being on cocaine. There's traces of cocaine on him and all in the bit like this this whole movie feels like it's just coked up you know i mean like i you know everybody in it looks like they're on a bender or you know three sniffs you know shy of just not being there anymore like it it's uh everybody looks rough and so i don't know anybody was actually using cocaine on the set here but good gosh, oh my this movie god yeah they like were it. i bet it was on it was, you know they it was right next to the craft services table there i mean well, it probably it was, was the craft services table for all we know so it probably was the only thing yeah. more cocaine that we've reviewed probably is maximum overdrive yeah probably but I mean, just kind of like looking at all the characters in this movie, I mean, we're, you know, we're kind of talking about like, you know, relating to any character in here. I mean, everybody in this movie is just a dirt ball. I mean, there is not one person that is likable. There's not really one person in here who, you know, I always equate to like, oh, it'd be kind of cool to have a beer with that character. No, no, I I don't like anybody in this movie. They're all despicable people. Not even Gus, the fat, lovable partner of, uh, Michael Douglas's uh, Curran, even he is kind of a rough around the edges fella. You yeah, know, you so. get him in a cowboy hat, and it's a gig. <laughs> yeah, he gets gets a little off. whiskey in him, and it's it's a little it's a little raw with old Gus. But yeah, we'll get into him in a minute though. But let's talk about these the cops and everything. You know, Michael Douglas rolls into the scene here. He's in his late forties, still looking pretty sharp. You know, uh, got a definite uh, bad fake tan uh, going on there to try to fit in with everybody. And the current character is interesting to me because he is total damaged goods. Unlike Dan Gallagher, who was this guy that had everything and then you watched it fall apart. Right. This guy has screwed up his career, his life, everything. Like he has no friends except Gus. Nobody trusts him. Nobody likes him. They make fun of him. They have a derogatory nickname for him. I mean, they call him Shooter because apparently he was coked up on the job and shot two tourists in the middle of a drug bust or something like that because they got in the way or maybe he just forgot who he was supposed to shoot. They never really explained that, but just that, you know, that's, he's also killed like five or six people on the job. He's just apparently like Cool Hand Luke or something out there. He's just a wild man. You know, it's a wild west with Curran. And how well, does, how does this guy have a job? That's what I wanted to know. I'm like, well, you know, I, I'm sitting here thinking, I'm like, wait a minute. I, I'm applying 2016 sensibility to this guy, which, you know, obviously doesn't fit because can you imagine like the outrage that our police go through now? Some of it warranted, a lot of it not for, you know, doing their jobs. Imagine if a guy like this existed today. Oh, my stars. It all depends on what color the tourists were. So. Oh, that's that's sadly true, uh, unfortunately. But yeah, but no, we meet this guy, and he is 
completely like on the jagged edge, right? Like he's totally strung out. This is the thing in Astros movies. There's always one character and this movie is just full of them, but there's always at least one character that's kind of right there on the ragged edge. This is like, reminds me of like if Riggs from lethal weapon hadn't been allowed to run around and look like a bum all the time, he would have probably been Nick current. <laughs> you know, that you could kind of see this, this guy being that way. And you're right. He's a total scumbag. Like he, I think we're supposed to root for him, but I find it really hard to do so because he is a total jerk. Yeah, there's no one you can root for in this movie. It's kind of like, you know, as the movie goes on and more and more people die, it's like you don't feel bad for any of these people getting, you know, shot in the head or stabbed with an ice pick in an elevator. I mean, it's just like, yeah, okay, you're you're done. Okay, move along. We don't have to see your gross, gross face anymore. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I got to laugh, though, at the um, the um, internal affairs guy. Um, I know him best from Seinfeld. Oh, so yes, of course. I was just I was I was just trying not to laugh every time he talks because I just keep on thinking it's like, hey, why don't you do it, George? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, he was sitting Nielsen's his name and he winds up getting killed later. He's got a small part of this. Yeah, but there's there's internal affairs breathing down his neck. He's forced to go see a therapist. Let's talk about this therapist situation here. How uh, does she have a job? <laughs> OK, she had triple horn now. I know her. She looks from, good in this movie too. Yeah. I know her from like Waterworld. She was like, young. Okay. She was like she was twenty eight or twenty nine when she made this. She was the youngest one of the main cast, at least. Sharon Stone, I think, had just turned thirty or something like that. So she was quite young. Both of the leading ladies here, you know, a decade or more under the uh, the leading guy. But no, she's she's cute. I mean, she's good. But I'm going to tell you, she's a terrible, you know psychologist all right she's supposed to be the police psychologist she's had an affair with this guy we already know that and everybody knows that yeah and everybody knows it it seems to be okay with it the ia guy is you know blackmailing her based on that to get current's file so he can sell it to Tremel, who's writing a book you know loosely based on it we'll get into that and i mean look everybody here is so shady even the captain is i mean he seems to be relatively innocent compared to the rest of them but holy cow he's not doing anything to rein in his his squad like this this bunch of people i mean it's amazing that they even function but yes how does this woman have a job uh doing what she's doing you know i can't even see where she's providing good therapy to current like what good is she doing him besides being a piece on the side i have no idea i mean i, I don't know much about like you know the, the hypocritical oath and stuff well and, yeah you can't um, sleep with your patients this, uh, yeah, unlike hollywood say, likes you to know but yeah <laughs> so. yeah i don't think it's you know she could be sleeping with them and yet die trying to like diagnose them and work with internal affairs to make sure this guy's all on the up and up. I mean, it, I, I just don't think it works like that. So. No, not like it, unless this is like the most shady police department since like Magnum force or something like that. I mean, this, wow. No wonder dirty Harry went rogue. I mean, really this, this bunch in Frisco here is, whew, they're screwed up. I mean, it's bad. It's, and it only gets worse. That's the thing. Like the amount of deaths that are directly the fault of the cops in this movie are astounding. Not to mention the serial killer that's at the center of all of this. So I just, I, it, it blows my mind. So, but, but and, you know and, what? And the, and the police work. Okay. I mean, mm -hmm. after, you know, this, this guy, Boz or whatever the hell his name is, gets killed. Mm -hmm. They, you know, start looking at Sharon Stone's character. They're thinking, okay, well, mm -hmm. 
you know, she, he was with, you know, she was with them and stuff. And all oh, this, this kind of matches the uh, murder in her book. So they bring her in and, you know, they go to her house and this is where we get the, the big famous scene of this movie. I mean, we get the, uh, we get the leg cross scene here with, uh, of course, you know, Newman staring in. Yeah, well, and everything. Before we get to the leg cross, though, let's talk about her introduction real quick. Cause that does okay. set that up. Okay. They go to her house. Well, they go to her downtown house first and we meet Roxy. Sure. who is her, quote, friend. Now, that was avant-garde in 1992. You know, the the bisexual, lesbian, you know, friend, whatever she is. So I got to ask you this now. Is yeah. she, like, so obsessed with herself that she had to find, like, a lesbian partner that looks just like her? I, I know. I think that's exactly it. I think that's what we're to believe. So it's that she found someone that could be her body double that she could then, so she could literally screw herself when she wanted to. Um, I mean, because we see them doing that later. So not in full regale, but, you know, might as well have been. So <laughs> we, we meet that, and then we go and meet her at her beach house, right? And she's sitting out on the deck, and she's kind of spaced out, right? Like, you know, like she's she's coming off of a big cocaine binge and having stabbed somebody in the neck. But I love how like her whole introduction is like, yeah, you know, are you sad he's dead? Yeah, I'm gonna miss screwing him, you know, and I'm like, holy cow, this bitch is crazy. <laughs> you know, and automatically though, like the tension and the camera, the way it's done and the music and stuff, we're supposed to feel the sexual tension between Nick and her. And I'm going, Nope, don't get it at all. Like even we talked about how Glenn Close is a sex symbol. That's kind of an odd choice, you know, for fatal attraction but there was chemistry between michael douglas and her in that movie you you made you know you could see that working on the screen i do not feel it at all between these two as hard as they go at it and work i feel like we're watching two people who are just doing a bunch of lines of coke and doing a bunch of lines of dialogue they michael douglas and sharon stone have absolutely no chemistry in this movie i'm sorry they just don't and I honestly don't think they're supposed to. I think it's supposed to be just a big act by her. Because just pure lust? As, is that it? No, I think it's just that she's writing her next story and she's picking him. And she's going through the motions to kind of get him to basically, I think, you know, I mean, we don't really get to see the, you know, a lot of the book that she's writing based upon him. But I think that she's basically trying to influence him to act out stuff so she could write about it. So I don't think there was really any like attraction there more than just an attraction. Again, she's about herself and that she's just very self-serving and that she sees like, hey, if I can seduce this guy, you know, it's going to help me, you know, he can be my, you know, this is going to be my muse for my book. And I think I believe that he's attracted to her in a lustful way, but I think mm -hmm. that she is so like precise in what she's doing towards him that, you know, we can see that there's no like actual like lust or attraction, but I think it's just more of like a clinical approach that she's going after him with. And she's just throwing like, you know, just all this like sexuality and moves at him that, you know, some guy in his position who's, you know, a loser for all matter of fact yeah. would fall for. You know, because he's really got nothing else. He doesn't like he has a wife or a family or anything like that where it's just going to work. You know what I mean? He's a freaking he's you know, he's on the he's on the wagon right now and everything. Well, and I well, think yeah, I mean, she's it, using that. She's using that against him the entire time. Oh, look, yeah. She even drives him off the way. See, he starts smoking again. He starts drinking again. I don't know that he does any coke, but he starts doing everything else. And he just goes out of mind. And what we find out about him is like his downward spiral that we is seen off screen and that we've talked about in the movie. We hear what it cost him. Like he had a wife and his wife killed herself over it. You know, and, and 
and all this stuff. So he's haunted by that guilt. He, you know, he doesn't have any children or anything like that. He's got, like we said, the one friend and he's got nobody on his side in the department. He's just going nowhere. And then this gorgeous blonde just attaches to him like, you know, unbelievably, like she just comes on and after him, like you wouldn't believe. It. I mean, they go to pick her up at her house for the questioning, you know, to bring her in because they've they've read the book now, and they're like, oh, so she she uh, killed a. Uh, the Johnny Boz got killed the same way that the person in her book did. And so he consults with the useless psychologist first. He says, well, you'd have to be pretty stupid to do it that way. And then they go to get her and she's like, okay, well, hold on a second. And like openly changes clothes where these guys can see it, you know, mm-hmm. just, just to tantalize him more, just to put that in there. And then we get the big interrogation scene. You're right. Newman's there. And I'm like, you know, don't you need to go steal those frozen embryos from Jurassic park? That's a few years away, I guess. But you know, there's, there's that. And, and they're they're going after her, but that that whole interrogation scene before she starts crossing and uncrossing her legs is ridiculous. They're, they're, I mean, I've watched enough true crime now to know there's no interrogation room that looks like an open. I don't know what room that is, Nick. But that was way large. Like the, this department's money is spent in the wrong places. You could tell it's it's so ridiculous and it's so ham-handed the way all of this dialogue comes across. It's and what I realized to me is that I think what Verhoeven realized in the script, at least I hope he realized, is that this is ridiculous. So I need to make it as campy and as ridiculous as I can because if we play this straight, people are going to boo us out of the country. And I have to think he made this as unintentionally hilarious as possible because that's exactly what this movie is. It is hilarious to watch. It is. I think it's, I mean, it it is the pure definition of a B movie as far as just the dialogue and everything. But I think Verhoeven kind of, he has fun with that aspect. He's not taking this thing seriously. He's making everything so over the top, even the way that like the direction is with the Close up shots and everything like that. It's you, you can tell it's you know it's it's a little uh, yeah. hung in cheek as far as the way everything is. I can tell you too. I think our our main actors too realize this. I think Douglas and Stone don't take this seriously either, and they just kind of go for it and they go completely over the top. They're crazy. Zunza does it too. The one who doesn't get the joke is Jan Triplehorn. Like she tries to play this as straight as possible, and it's horrible. Like it just makes well, her. I, I think I think yeah. it probably goes in with her age and stuff. You know, this probably be one of her first, you know, major movie roles and stuff. And she's probably like, "Yeah, I'm gonna bring my A game to this." And everybody else is kind of like, "Oh yeah, okay, this horrible yeah. piece of crap." They're all in. You know, I mean, look, they're making a lot of money. They made a lot of money off of it, and it it was a big thing. But she. Well, I think I think too. Did. I mean, when I think when Verhoeven <laughs> probably read the script and everything like that, he realizes people aren't coming here for the freaking plot. You know? <laughs> no. they're, they're not. You're not coming here for that. This is the quintessential date movie that you would take, you know, your girlfriend out to. You know what I mean? Like it's I said, it's, like, it's the Fifty Shades before Fifty Shades became. The, it's it's that movie again. Yeah, I think yeah. You're, it's, it's, it's I think you're exactly it's, right. It's trash. Yeah. It's trash. Yeah. It's just cinematic trash. That's what it is. Exactly. But the thing is, and, and this is where the movie really makes me mad, though, is because Verhoeven clearly gets that, but yet he still insists on these elaborate sets and this all this weird lighting that he's into and just doing the craziest things with cameras that you can possibly do when it's it's 
sent, meant to be just a simple two shot or something like that. He just swings that thing all over the place. It's like being on a dang roller coaster. And I like those for a while, but you can't ride them all day. Like, you know, at some point you got to like let your equilibrium get back. And that's the problem is, is I've never been on cocaine, but this movie feels like you're on a coke binge. Like it's all up and down, up and down. And you just never get any minutes to breathe. And in some ways, the pacing of it works well because of that. But on the other hand, it's a real slog to get through if you're trying to pay any attention to it at all. Like we are here trying to review it. Yeah, it's uh, I think the best way to describe it, it's a fever dream movie. Yeah. It's just like it's it's surreal in so many ways. But um, OK, so we, we get into her, you know, with, with this interrogation and exactly what, you know, the psychiatrist or the shrink was saying is that. You know, she's going to, I mean, it's almost like something out of the Princess Bride where it's like, oh, well, you know, I'd be pretty stupid to, yeah. to kill this person the way I wrote it in the book. But then they're like, but yeah, but that's the way you, you'd want us to think that, though. You know what I mean? You already got an alibi built into here. So it's kind of like this, you know, back and forth where it's like, you know, you can keep on putting argument after argument on top of this. So. Right, right. It just keeps going on and on and on. And, you know, after it's, this, it's a circular, it's a circular alibi is what it is. Oh, completely. And then that's what starts Nick down this, you know, dark spiral again, because he goes to the bar to hang out with all the cops at the end of the you know, grand interview and he starts, you know, drinking again. So Nilsson, the IA guy from uh, Seinfeld starts giving him hell. And, you know, then there's that. And then him and Beth, they leave. all hang out at the same, same bar. bar. Right. And Beth comes down there to sort of rescue him and they go back to her place and have really violent, uh, something in her apartment. Like it's, yeah, she's gotta be mad yeah. though, man. I mean, oh, she is. she's pissed he, off at him. She, she tells he, him he to leave. Her, he ruined her outfit. <laughs> Well, she's never going to be able to wear that again. How is she going to go home? She can't even put anything back on. It's like scraps that, of clothing after that this. was her home. They went to oh, her it was. place. Oh, yeah. I went back to his place. Okay. No, it was because they all look the same. So the apartments are exactly identical. But no, yeah, they're, they're at her place. So she throws him out at the end of that. But yeah, they have that really uncomfortable, weird, rough sex thing going on. And he starts, uh, you know, getting ready to leave. Yeah, but did they does. even really even have sex? Though? Well, <laughs> yeah, like, they they kind of did. Whole, I think the whole aspect of really what it is probably, la- you know, if we could take the whole Bill Clinton aspect of what that word means, it's probably lasted about two seconds. <laughs> well, I'm not, I don't know about Nick's stamina, but I do know that uh, she's not real pleased with the outcome. Let's say that. So, uh, you know, whatever his... Uh, moment was i don't think she shared in it clearly and who could blame her keepers creepers i mean what a nightmare and so well, she keeps we, on going back to it well we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute because there's there's a, a subplot of that that i'm a little confused about i hope you can help explain it but because this starts nick of course starts going after Catherine. they start their torrid love affair and they dance and they make out at a club and roxy's there and they you know have the elongated sex scene in the bed and Roxy then decides I'm going to run Nick over in Catherine's car but because they have this great car you know chase which for no reason other than we just needed something to you know waste some time and play some really odd music and I want to ask you about the music by the way I I have no idea why but for some reason Jerry Goldsmith's uh um soundtrack here was reminding me so much of like Predator 
stuff. You know, it's, it felt like some of the same music cues. It's like he just reused them, and I thought it's like an action movie music set for a noir crime steamy thriller, which is an interesting choice. It is the the, the music in this movie. I mean, it's. The, the whole movie is just so over the place with what type of tones it's setting. I mean, between like the camera work and the direction, the lighting, the acting, and then just like these like action beats and everything and the music. I mean, it's just, it is, it is all over the place. And I just, like I said, I think this whole movie is just a big cocaine fueled uh, <laughs> um, setup. I really do. I think, you know, we, you're talking about like, well, we never see him use cocaine in the movie. I think they're, I think they probably kept on running out by the time the scene actually started. So they couldn't use it. <laughs> Well, I don't know. I, I I think the character maybe goes down that road again, but we don't see. But we do get the big car crash, right? And Roxy's dead now. And Catherine actually seems legitimately sad about this. And I guess if you're used to screwing yourself, you're you are sad about well, this. Even, well, even you before know. this, um, mm-hmm. they do the um George's boss from Seinfeld gets shot in the head, and <laughs> of course Michael Douglas's character's there. And then she's off, you know, runs off the road and's dead, and he's there. I'm just thinking, I'm like. How many more times is he going to be at the scene of a murder or a death? Well, like, they do take his gun. They they well, do take they, his gun and suspend him after this. So yeah, they they at least his captain is wise enough to get him off the beat. Yeah, you think they would probably try to at least bring him in for some official line of questioning? I mean, they do after the one dude gets shot in the head, but come on, after this, you I mean you gotta you gotta hold this guy for a little bit and try to find out what the hell's going on? I mean. He, he the kid the, the uh i the internal affairs guy who he got into a, a fight with ends up dead mm-hmm. and then someone who's obviously connected to sharon stone's character ends up dead next to him and thinking it's like come on this is the worst police force in the world I, again they are terrible i told you they, they are a terrible i see why dirty harry went rogue and so i mean it just went downhill after he left the force at the end of the deadpool uh you can you can tell so i mean it's it's bad and I, the thing is is though they keep putting people in this interrogation thing and i'm like but is this because now we need to see him react like her in the interrogation suite, because he pretty much does, with the exception of crossing and uncrossing his legs with his fly open or something. You know, that's the only difference in it. He doesn't do that. But otherwise, it's the same scene again. It's almost the same dialogue. It's the same inflection. It's crazy. I, I like how it's always like three or four lines of questioning, and then they go, we have to ask you, did you kill him? And oh, like, yeah, and they do it like in the most dramatic way. Like the, the camera sort of sits down and then pulls into the, the captain. It's like, did you do it? Did you order the code red? You know, they get like really intense. You know, yeah. and I'm like, who's what kind of cop in here? Or is everybody just I don't high? know. I mean, this, this should have taken place in Manitowoc, Wisconsin. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, even those guys aren't this, but maybe they watch this movie a lot. I don't know. But yeah, I mean, really, this it's it's horrible, right? So he goes to comfort Catherine, who's who's sad after Roxy's dead, and she gives him this thing, and I'm like, this is a total setup right here because she talks about well, I had this one encounter with a girl in college, but then she became obsessed with me, and I you know had to like get a restraining order against her and all this stuff. And of course, we're gonna find out later that that is Beth, the uh, the psychologist, who tells it the other way around that no, Catherine became obsessed with me, and I wanted to ask you who do you believe in that story i think beth became obsessed with her because the way beth is obsessed with him i think that she you know probably latches on to not so great characters and can't let go 
I, I think you're dead on. My wife disagrees with this. She kind of believed Beth that uh, that Sharon Stone was the one because she's so manipulative. But I'm like, no, I actually believe Sharon Stone because the thing about a great liar is that every now and then they tell a good truth. You know, yeah, there's they, a little, they, they, yeah. they mix in the truth and the lies so you can't figure it out and they do it so convincingly. But throughout the movie, we do not see her character at all become attached to anything besides herself and her work. That's an so excellent it, point, yeah. And he and she is showing, you know, like she is dangerously attached to him, even though he is no good for her. And yeah. I just think that I think it's she's the one. And that's that's what I took it as. And as we get in later in the movie, that's why I'm thinking I'm like, you know, is she behind some of these murders or something. I mean, was this really, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, well, that's see, kind of the I, thing. I think I think what the answer to that ultimately is, is that no. But it, you can believe that, and people would buy that story because she is so dangerously obsessed with him, and she's got a history of it. And Sharon Stone is the ultimate manipulator. Catherine Trammell is like the devil herself. Like she knows how to play both sides. She knows she set this whole thing up. That's the the hardest part of this to believe is to realize what Catherine Trammell had to go through to set all of this up. It's it's more convoluted than what the Emperor Palpatine has to go through to set up the the prequels i, I mean it's, say, it, it kind of it's kind of reminding me of skyfall right now where it's like it's everything pretty, is just perfectly set up it is man it is convoluted all right i'm gonna tell you but that's i think that's exactly what we're supposed to believe is that she has set this up with the perfect set of patsies the perfect victims the perfect foil in the cop or whatever and the one thing she didn't count on was him surviving all of this and hanging around i think she really thought eventually he's gonna be like there ain't nothing that good and walk away. What she doesn't realize is how much of a loser this guy really is that he doesn't care if he lives or dies as long as he can just bang her one more time. I mean, that seems to be his whole goal in life. The half last third of the movie. And Cause I mean, he defends her at no end in front of all manner of evidence and still just will not give it up. I mean, I think Gus says something like that magna cum lude, uh, uh, Poon has got you all messed up or something like that in the head. It's probably even more crude than that. But, I mean, I think he's exactly right. I think whatever she's got, he has got it bad for. And it's it's, he, it's amazing when you watch, like, a the, these movies where the evil person's plot has to go perfectly. And there's always something that screws them up, right? It's usually the genuineness of the heroine. But in this case, the heroine is, is a complete loser so there's no way that it's going to go well it's it's the perfect plan i i guess so i mean it's it's too perfect i guess but yeah i mean just kind of looking at it i mean if beth is not the killer then what was the motivation beside behind all this you know well, killing all these people and was it just for the book it, i think it, i think you've hit it it's it's the book what you what you learn is you kind of trace back through Catherine Trammell's book history or whatever she wrote a book about a kid whose parents die in a plane crash and he does it and gets away with it well, what you find out is her parents died in a boating accident years before now she wrote that years later but that you know, you can kind of get the sense that that was her first kill right was them and so then after that her next one was to get the rich rock star and kill him off that's johnny boss and now the newest book which she writes in record time by the way gets a like has covers on it and everything so either she writes it in record time or the logical end is she's been planning this for a long time she bought his file you know from the internal affairs 
Bears cops. She's because she, she knew Beth was there. She's orchestrated all of this so that she could ultimately get the next bestseller because she, it's not like she needs the money. She does it for the thrill, right? So this was her next thrill. It was, I'm going to take this loser cop that no one's ever going to believe anyway. And I've got, Oh, this is even better. The crazy girl that followed me around in college after I screwed her that one time. Well, she's there and there's all these cops are easy to buy right now. And so she just, I think she laser hooks into all of it a long time away. I think she's halfway through writing the book before we ever see them meet on screen. I honestly do. I think she's that calculating. Well, maybe maybe it goes back to what your wife believes, that maybe Sharon Stone's character was the one that was obsessed, that maybe she had an obsessive, you know, she was, after the the relationship ended, that she was still obsessed with her, and she basically wanted her to get die, and that this is all basically a setup to have her get killed, and that she went through the motions of all this to end up having her get killed, because, you know, as we get, you know, as we get to the last third of the movie, um, you know, Gus is in the elevator. He's going to go meet with him, and he gets stabbed with an ice pick in the elevator. And then um, Triplehorn's character ends up to be in the same building. She got called there or was asked to come there, and that's when Michael Douglas ends up shooting her because she's reaching into her pocket, and she's he's not stopping even though he's got a gun aimed at her, and she's still reaching in her pocket, and he ends up shooting her. So it's like, why was she there? Who called her there? Well, she got called by Gus to meet him there because he wanted her there to you know be witness to to whatever he was supposed to find. He was supposed to be meeting up with some. But why? You know, but why? Why bring her? College roommate of something. I don't know. I that's the thing I don't understand is why he wanted her there either. But for whatever reason, they do, both do, wind do, up do, there. Do, do internal affairs psychologists get asked? The you know. <laughs> interrogation well, or questioning scenes well hold, that, hold on you know, she's not off she, the record well hold on she's the police psychologist and i think at this okay. point gus's like chief concern is he is trying to get his buddy safe and so he knows this woman will go to bat for him too but she's gonna but need she's proof, got so. but she is she would not be any type of witness in the court of law because she has enough she has a relationship with him I don't, therefore has a reason to lie i don't think it's ever going to come to the court of law I think it's completely the internal side of it. He just wants somebody else there. Or you can say that Catherine set her up to be there. Here's the thing is I think her being there is pure coincidence to Catherine. Cause I don't think Catherine cares at all. She's hooked on current and I'm going to use this guy as my book or whatever. And the fact that that woman is there and that I had this history with her. Well, that is just <laughs> cherry on top of the whipped cream at this point, because the one genuine piece of emotion that you get out of Sharon Stone's character in this whole movie is when Roxy dies, because it's the one thing she didn't orchestrate. She didn't want her to go out there and, um, try to run him down in the car. I think Sharon Stone kills the internal affairs cop, sure. But I, th I think Roxy did that on her own and it, it, it really hurt, um, Catherine when she dies. I think that's the one true bit of emotion she shows us this whole movie. Otherwise, everything is completely orchestrated. I think she is playing all of this like a fiddle. And, I, and again, the fact that, uh, you know, old girlfriend from college was there was, Simply a coincidence. That's the only way I can think about it. There's no way she could have orchestrated that woman to have that job there. You know, this. there's no way. But that's what I'm saying, though, is maybe, you know, like the whole reason that she chose him was because of the relationship with her and that this was a whole way just to get back at her in a way. And maybe, just, maybe it was. You know, yeah. 
like I said, it's a lot of the stuff. Like I said, I think it's just kind of like a choose your own adventure. Here with it it kind of is. It's a, it's a choose your own adventure and screw Sharon Stone every twelve pages. Yeah, I mean, I mean is, it, is, is she that you know she wants to get back at her? Does she want to you know use him as as her muse for this book? I mean, it's just kind of like. I guess you could kind of choose everything or or you can you know even say you know was beth you know did she you know maybe kill some people in this movie too i mean i i, I don't know i still i, just, I don't like, think I, so i think Catherine is is our killer all the way through because it, again it's so convenient when they're cleaning out beth's apartment at the end they find all of these clues they're like well she's been the killer the whole time aha it's very scooby-doo you know, and I'm like, well, that that's all nice and convenient. And like, you see Nick over there, like half of him is sort of torn up, and the other half is like, this is exactly what I expected to happen. And he's just like, screw it. <laughs> you know, like he just is, doesn't care. Is there no care. like forensic evidence in this time period? <laughs> I mean, it's like, you know, it's. I don't think I mean, OJ had happened yet, so it wasn't that big. There's got to be like fingerprints or something. I mean, <laughs> well, there's fingerprints, yeah. But, but it, I mean, again, you're talking about like you know perfect alibis and everything like mm-hmm. that. For everything to be set up exactly to be able to be like, uh huh, uh huh. I mean, it's okay. She's got all these pictures all together in a drawer. Well, that's, you, you know, know what? Right if if, if Michael Mann was writing and directing this movie, that would all be a part of it. But Joe Estras is, and that's why that's not a part of any of this, Nick. So I think in a in a like a real crime film or whatever, yeah. But in this piece of pulp trash, nah, they don't care. They know they know the audience really doesn't care either. Oh, we, we they, they wrap it up yeah. so they can get another sex scene in at the end. Yeah, we got we got to get one more, and it's like this. It's like. It was almost like watching a wrestling show, you know, because there's like you watch certain wrestlers in different time periods and they sort of have like a formula to their match. Right. And they get into like a groove of what they're going to do. And Sharon Stone seems to have this thing she does with sex. She's writhing on top of someone and she like bends backwards and then throws herself forward at the end. Right. And that's usually the moment where she stabs someone or we no, think that's, usually, that, that's usually a moment in real life when you're worried someone's having a stroke. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like that. That's not anything real at all but i'd be thinking i'm like don't, don't do it too hard because i can see you totally like foreheading me in the nose <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that could really like get it in badly in so many ways but beyond that, bad back by the time she's 40 i i'm serious i the, the woman's uh, she's working out some some anger and frustration in that but anyway we see her and nick do this again and we think for like two seconds did she stab him did she stab him no she didn't and then they have this little, you know, semi-cute thing in the bed where he's like, yeah, we'll just, you know, have sex a lot, raise a bunch of kids, and live happily ever after. And she's like, I hate kids. He's like, okay, fine then. Forget the kids. We'll just do the other things. And she is looking at him intently. And then all of a sudden they just wind up in each other's arms. And it's so, you know, cheesy romance novel. Like, it's so bad. And it fades out and it's a total fake out because then they come right back and we pan down below the bed and there's the silver ice pick. So she was going to do him she was gonna kill him in the end anyway and i'm like boy that's an expensive ice pick too well that's what i said i was like you know wait a minute though that didn't make any sense though because for a woman who's calculated and set all of this up to kill him now makes no sense because then you totally draw it to yourself how are you gonna he doesn't submit suicide by stabbing himself with an ice pick (laughs) a hundred times nobody's gonna buy that so it would have been better if she just got up and walked away and slammed the door and just left him there you know wanting more like that would have been more of what i thought she would have done as a character i i i thought that was really weird like why would she want to kill him now like it's after all of this i mean because he's got nothing left 
Like he's he's completely broken as a man at this point. Well, All he is is just her. She want to kill him is because in the book she says that he dies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah, falls for the I wrong woman and she way, kills it's him. Fulfilling yeah. that book in reality. And then she decides not to for you know for now at whatever reason, right? So, I, I think it's only a matter of minutes before she does it. To be well, honest with well, you, well, yeah, think, yeah. and I, I'll tell you, I don't remember much about Basic Instinct two besides it being bad. But I also don't remember them ever mentioning this guy. So I think there may be a drop line somewhere or whatever. But I, if you think this guy's alive, no way. <laughs> this dude is dead meat all the way, and I think he's just waiting on it at this point because. He's got nothing left. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the funny thing about this movie, though. Again, it, it tries to give you all these really smart plot twists, but they're really not. Like, if you just think about it for a minute, it, it's, it's always got to be her. Like, I, I hear what you're saying about it could be Beth here. It could be this, but really it, it never can be. It's, it's Catherine. I'm all only the way. saying it, it could be Beth because just for her to be involved with every single one, it's just, it's too much. I mean, it's just well, like, it's too convenient. It's too yeah. much of a perfect plan. It's too much of coincidences equaling up to okay, it wasn't a coincidence or wasn't happenstance. It was all part of a plan. I mean, it's it's so crazy. I mean, it's like mixing like Joker and Silva from uh, freaking uh, you know Skyfall and all this together. Just as far as just like all this happenstance that just equals up perfect for her. But I I don't know. I mean, I think it's just. I think it's just kind of a sloppy screenplay. I think, again, this whole movie was just based upon the fact of, hey, we got the screenplay. Who's the hot girl right now? Oh, Sharon Stone. Okay, let's get her to do this because she'll get naked. I, I think they they went with the titillation. I think you're right. I think, again, they said this is the airport, the airport paperback novel, and we're just going to go with it, and this is what well, this, they came this, up with. This is kind of like, you know, the classy porn magazine that you can keep out on your coffee table. I think that's like kind of like <laughs> what this is, is like you're thinking like this is a movie that you can buy in the future and you could have it on your DVD shelf and no one's really going to think much of it. You know, if you have something on there like, you know, hot nurses flower or something like that, people are going to think you're a perv. But this one you could kind of hide and just be like, you know, well, I'm in the cinema, you know, I'm into this or something like that. I, really, it's like, no, you're not. You're just into watching some, you know, hanky panky on the screen. Yeah, that's that's a good way of saying it. Well, we're obviously at the point of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations, popcorn ratings. What are yours for Basic Instinct? Medium popcorn for me. Um, it's not a good movie. It's not. It's not well acted. It's. I like the direction in here because it's so gonzo crazy as far as what they're what Verhoeven's doing in here. And I'm a big Verhoeven fan. I really liked a lot of his early work and some of his mid '90s work. So it's it's cool to be able to see another piece of his work. Actually, I think this is the only movie of his I haven't seen, minus probably the ones he's you know released in the last you know probably what like post uh, Hollow Man I think. <laughs> so um, yeah, I mean it's kind of cool to be able to actually like fill this last little uh, movie criteria in for Verhoeven, but um, it's probably his worst movie. I th- I mean of that area of that era and i think it's worse than showgirls (laughs) in that way i mean i think showgirls for me is kind of a guilty pleasure maybe we'll get into that one day but um yeah it's it's a medium popcorn it's you know it's not terrible but it's not good it's not a movie i'm gonna you know revisit i mean christ i mean we got the internet now i don't need to revisit this one so (laughs) anyway yeah medium popcorn for me (laughs) you know what you said a phrase in there that i think is exactly the summation of this movie uh and it's guilty pleasure 
I, I think that's what this whole movie is based upon is the idea of guilty pleasure and not making you feel guilty about it. The, the problem with it is, is if you do take a step back for a second and if you're that kind of person that wants to do that, you're going to be really disappointed because this movie is so full of holes and it's so ridiculous that you, yeah, I mean, like we've laughed about it the whole time here. The things that Catherine's able to pull off are, are Palpatine and Silva and Satan level of planning. Like, it's amazing. But if you just sort of take it for what it is, popcorn, cheese, noir, be fun, you can enjoy this. Again, it's unintentionally hilarious in a lot of ways. And I think in, in a group, it could it could be consumed. I will say now, like, I, I would recommend watching it and just fast-forwarding every time they try to hook up. It's like, okay, we got four minutes, now we're going to go to the bathroom or whatever, because there's nothing to be gained from any of that. You know what's happening. So it's it's there's nothing really forwarded by the, the story there, and it's because there isn't much of a story there. This, it's this, the adult version of Roger Rabbit. I, wow. <laughs> I didn't think we'd ever compare those two. But I agree with you. This is definitely that guilty pleasure land. But can it be medium popcorn? Well, you know, I have that varying degree on medium popcorn. Sometimes it's either something that like fails and is so frustrating in its failure that, that that's what it is, but it's not so bad that it's just awful. Or it's something that is in that guilty pleasure land that's got a little bit of quality to it, but it's not that good. Is this medium popcorn territory for me? I don't know. I kind of almost want to say this is small because this movie is really bad and some of the acting in it is really awful. But well, in the gotta, end, you gotta, you gotta, in the end, some the, of the gore scenes are the, cool. the gore and the direction, and again the campiness of it. I can't sit here and tell you I didn't have fun and laugh at it as I was you know, reviewing it and watching it here. So yeah, I'll give it a medium popcorn as well. Uh, but I'll say this right now, like it, you know, we we've done the two Michael Douglas, uh, you know, sen- sensual thrillers. We haven't done Disclosure. Maybe we'll get rid of that one day. But of the two, there's not even any comparison. People used to say like Basic Instinct will be the next Fatal Attraction. I'm like only for fucked up people because (laughs) there's no way anyone else can relate to this like there was a relatable factor to fatal attraction only if you're really screwed up and strung out can you relate to basic instinct this movie yeah this i I think you you could probably relate this movie if you're like a porn director (laughs) yeah and and you're running from the law only screwed up people can appreciate this kind of movie and or feel like they're getting if you work for gawker this is your movie (laughs) yeah probably so uh which they probably can't rent it right now because they're paying some legal fees but anyway so um alchemania ran wild on them and on somebody else, apparently, which is how that all started. But another story for another day. Well, Nick, thanks for joining me for another episode here on Filmstrip. Of course, we reviewed lots of different kinds of stuff here in Spring Palooza, Tons of things going on. And, of course, lots more fun to come in the coming months and weeks. You can always find our past episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. You can uh, hook up with us on iTunes by searching for Continuous Play Podcast Filmstrip. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think of the show. And again, we always appreciate your support. For Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.